Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Wash Me Away by New Moons. This indie rock band from Cincinnati is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In 1982, Shepherd Bookstore was a beloved part of Montgomery, a restored colonial-type suburb on Cincinnati's northeast border. The three-story frame building had sat at the corner of Main Street and Cooper Road for 178 years. It was originally a hotel, surrounded by saloons and prized by early settlers who appreciated its high ground, safe from the flooding of the Little Miami River. Over the years, the house had served other purposes. A physician had put out his shingle here once, It had also served as a law office and a real estate firm. But locals loved its modern role in their community, where the elderly owners, Olga and Ken Shepard, prided themselves in taking care of their customers. Olga loved helping customers in their hunt for rare books. And the store felt more like a parlor than a retail shop, with Olga serving up fresh baked cookies to her visitors. Olga, who would only give people her age as 70-ish, had operated a bookstore in Kenwood before she'd come here to Montgomery. Her husband ran a Mercedes-Benz dealership in Hyde Park before his retirement. Ken was 82 years old and an invalid. He couldn't get around without his walker, but he was never far from Olga. You see, the shepherds lived on the floor above the store. 
There was a third floor, too, and a basement that had been added to the structure half a century ago. A year earlier, the Shepherds had rented their basement to an antiques dealer, and the store name of Country Classics was added to the sign out front. Our story tonight will end in a ball of fire that will destroy Shepherd Bookstore. But that is later. This tale begins in the windy city of Chicago and we'll have to time travel back seven more years to 1975 when the series of events that spell the end of Shepherd Bookstore actually begin. That was the year Carl Henry Johnson stole $614,000 from the bank where he worked. Carl was the assistant comptroller at the National Bank of Albany Park in Northwest Chicago. On a Wednesday in August, after the bank closed at noon, banks always closed at noon on Wednesdays back then, he gathered all the money he could, much of it taken directly from teller's cash drawers, and he walked out of the bank. If anybody had noticed it, they might not have been overly suspicious anyway. He was, after all, the executive in charge of the bank. Of course, it didn't take long to discover what happened. The next morning, the theft was apparent. And Carl Johnson, 39 at the time and the father of three sons, was indicted for bank fraud and embezzlement. Pretty quickly, the FBI managed to recover 144000 of the stolen money. Johnson had left 52000 in small bills in a briefcase in the bedroom of his parents' home with a note that said, I have never asked any favors before, but now I ask a big one. Please look out for the welfare of the boys. Sorry for this final heartache. The FBI also retrieved $92,000 that had been hidden beneath a stereo at a Chicago church, money he had intended for his wife. But they were still missing almost half a million dollars, as well as the man who had taken it. Carl Johnson was on the run. He had a valid passport, and his car was found at O'Hare International Airport the day after he'd taken the money. It was quite possible, authorities said, that he had fled the country. And for the next seven years, the FBI never got any closer to figuring out what happened to Carl. Turns out he never left the country, and frankly, wasn't all that far from home, at least for a little while. He spent several months living in Cincinnati, and then spent years in San Diego, California, using three different aliases as he kept ahead of the law. Meanwhile, back at home, Carl's wife, Lois, was in hot water. The bank threatened to sue her for the money her husband had taken. So to distance herself from the crime, she quickly obtained a divorce. And for the next seven years, there wasn't a peep from the AWOL father of her teenage boys. ¶¶
November of 1982, after seven years met the requirement to do so, she obtained a court order declaring Carl Johnson legally dead. And so you can imagine just how stunned everyone was when just two weeks later, on December 2, 1982, Carl Johnson, now 46 years old, rose from the proverbial grave and surrendered. He told the FBI, I've had enough. He was accompanied by the Reverend Sharon Stroud, his San Diego minister, who had urged him to quit running and turn himself in. Johnson was remorseful and determined to make as much restitution as he could. He offered to lead the FBI to where he had buried some of his loot. First, he took them to a remote forest preserve near Chicago, where they dug up $50,000 in cash. Next, he said there was another $50,000 safely buried in Cincinnati. That was a lot of money. Today, that $50,000 alone would be the equivalent of nearly $140,000. Johnson would show them the remote spot near the Queen City, but the deal was that he wouldn't tell anyone until they got there. Johnson's attorney explained at the time, he was the only one who knew. We deliberately set it up that way. The FBI didn't want to know ahead of time, and I didn't want to know. If the money wasn't there when they got there, no one wanted the finger pointed at them. On December the 16th, 1982, Johnson was loaded onto a twin-engine Cessna 411, flanked by four FBI agents and a private detective. The detective was 68-year-old Patrick Daly, a retired cop working for the law firm that represented Johnson. Two of the FBI agents were doubling as the rented plane's pilots, 34-year-old Terry Herford, and 35-year-old Michael Lynch. The other two agents were Robert Connors and Charles Ellington, both 33. All of them were from Illinois. They lifted off for what would have been a short trip to Cincinnati's municipal Lunkin Airport. Just after 10 a.m., the plane began its approach to Lunkin. It was still 10 miles short of the airport as it sailed over the Cincinnati suburb of Montgomery. And something went terribly wrong. The plane dipped into the heart of the village, snapping power lines, flattening a truck, clipping a station wagon, and then burrowing into the Shepherd bookstore before igniting in a huge explosion. Witnesses said they heard the roar of the plane's engines and then a whining sound as the plane descended at a steep angle through overcast skies. And then a part fell off, said Tom Jones, an employee of a nearby auto dealer. The pilot made a real hard bank, Jones said, and we thought it was going to try to land here in the lot. But he lost all power and went down, hitting some cars and sliding into the bookstore. The whole place immediately went up in flames. Later, it was learned the part that fell was a propeller dropped onto the roof of a wallpaper store on Main Street as the plane reached a near-vertical position. 
The bookstore was a block from the firehouse, and the firefighters were on the scene immediately. In an interview last year with WCPO in Cincinnati, Fire Chief Paul Wright, who had only been a firefighter for two years when the crash happened, recalled it well. Here's the chief and Scott Wagoner from Nine on Your Side. So vividly remember seeing that fireball go up at that corner. Wright and his crew went into the burning building, but their hoses weren't making a dent in the flames. And it occurred to me, av gas. There must be a bunch of av gas that flew into here. And firefighters didn't realize how the scene was getting even more dangerous. Still also remember while the fire was burning here and popping going off, and it was later determined, hey, that popping you heard was most probably those four agents all had uh, weapons on them. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Several locals rushed toward the bookstore to help. When the plane plowed into the building, the cash register toppled onto Olga Shepard, who had just rang up an order. She and her customer fought their way toward the front door, where someone kicked it in, then reached in to pull them to safety. Gretchen Thomas, a clerk at the Country Classic Antique Store, which rented out the bookstore's basement, escaped out a basement door while others helped a customer and Gloria Albrecht, the owner of the antique store, crawl through a broken basement window. On the second floor, 82-year-old Ken Shepard had just settled in for a late morning nap when he heard and felt the terrific explosion. He was immediately surrounded by smoke and flame. He normally needed the help of a walker to move, and the use of his glasses to see, but he had neither, as he took action to save himself. His first thought was that he didn't want to be caught in his pajamas. Later, he would tell reporters, so I slipped on my trousers so the girls wouldn't chase me, and I got out of the room. Getting out meant moving 30 feet from the bed and to another room without the use of a walker, a feat he could not explain. That other room had a window with access to a roof, and he crawled through it. Once outside, though, he felt far from safe. Flames were licking every side of the roof and consuming the bedroom behind him. Outside, Olga was telling firefighters to save her husband. She alerted them to his presence inside just as she fainted in the parking lot. Meanwhile, Ken was on the roof waving at the firemen. The fire was so close, it singed his hair, left burn marks behind his ears, and scorched the area beneath his arm where he'd lifted it to get the attention of rescuers below. Firefighters turned a hose in Ken's direction, showering him with water, while an undaunted firefighter named Rob Penny used a ladder to climb up and carry him down. Later, 
after recovering from his burns and smoke inhalation at Bethesda North Hospital, a good-humored Joseph would say, That water was cold. It was like ice. But there I was, sitting on the roof in my pajamas, being sprayed by firemen. What a way to wake up. Those folks inside the building weren't the only ones in need of rescuing. Outside the bookstore, Phyllis Nyer, a mother of eight, had just pulled her car into the bookstore's parking lot. She was going to do some final Christmas shopping. It happened so fast, the next thing she remembered was there were people at her car window trying to help her get out. The plane had clipped her station wagon, trapping her inside. The steering wheel had broken her left knee and flames were filling the car's interior. Firefighter Frank Lerner and a couple of unidentified bystanders managed to yank her out. The crash destroyed the building and several cars, but incredibly, no one on the ground was killed. In all, seven people were treated for injuries. In addition to Olga and Ken Shepard, who both suffered burns and smoke inhalation, There was 26-year-old Ruth Harding, a customer in the antique store who had a bruised hip and burned scalp. Lois Jolson, a bookstore customer who was treated for smoke inhalation. Helen Schwartz, the bookstore's bookkeeper, who was 60 years old, severely burned, and had to go through significant physical therapy. Gretchen Thomas, who worked in the antique store with cuts and bruises. And Phyllis Nyer, the 51-year-old pulled from her car, who spent 63 days in the hospital and underwent five operations for her badly damaged knees and burns to 15% of her body. Don Horline, Montgomery's fire chief in 1982, said as bad as it was, it could have even been worse. If the plane had come down 400 feet away, it would have hit the heart of the business district, where the loss of life surely would have been greater. The crash was three blocks from Sycamore Junior High School, which was full of students, and less than a block from several gas stations. The firefighters also checked the plane wreckage, but there were no survivors. The crash killed everyone on board the embezzler, the detective, and the four FBI agents. The first responders knew which one was Johnson without ever having seen him before. He still had his handcuffs on. The crash was particularly devastating for the FBI. Never had the FBI lost four agents in a single incident before, not even in all the shootouts in the agency's history. With Christmas just a few days away, their families suffered greatly. All four FBI agents were married with 13 children between them. Alfred Smith, special agent in charge of the FBI office in Cincinnati, said, We're an FBI family. It hits us as it would hit any family. It was also a painful loss for the embezzler's family. They had just gotten him back, only to lose him before being reunited. You see, 
As Carl Johnson was beginning his trip to Cincinnati that morning, his former wife and their three sons were already on the road, headed from their home in Lakeland, Florida to Chicago so they could spend the Christmas holidays with their long-lost husband and father. It was going to be the first time they had seen him since he vanished in 1975. Lois Johnson was a music teacher at the Medulla Elementary School in Lakeland, Florida. She also gave private music lessons and worked as an organist for the local Baptist church to support her three teenage boys. Just as divorce had given her some distance from his crimes, the move from Chicago gave them some physical distance from the scene of her husband's mighty fall. Lois and Carl had struggled in their marriage. There had even been a time he had asked her for a divorce. But she thought they had come through that and were getting along better when it suddenly came to that sudden and unexpected end. She never gave up hope she'd see him again one day. Every time the phone would ring or the doorbell would ring, I'd think it might be news, she told a reporter. Every time I'd go in the classroom, I'd think he might be standing there. But over the years, Lois had convinced herself that Carl had been killed by the mafia. Chicago was a gangster town, and in his role as a comptroller, Carl had been investigating a case of financial irregularity when he made his own break. So after seven years, she had a Florida court declare Carl Johnson dead enabling her to finally access a $22,500 life insurance policy. When the FBI called her to say that Carl had turned himself in two weeks later, she couldn't have been more stunned. I was flabbergasted, she said. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Lois talked about how she and her sons were looking forward to a reunion. I have always loved Carl and always will. There is no other man in my life she said. Carl died aboard that Cessna as his family was on the cross-country trip to reach him. This wasn't the era of cell phones, and there was no way for anyone to reach them on the road to tell them about the tragedy before the news went national. The National Transportation Safety Board quickly arrived in Cincinnati to investigate, but two years later, Stories in the Cincinnati Inquirer said results had been given to the FBI and the NTSB was leaving it up to them whether they wanted to share it or not. They did not share. It didn't stop the lawsuits, even if nobody could stipulate exactly what downed the plane. It took years, but eventually some victims settled and received more than a million dollars. People picked up their lives and tried to move on. Those stories on the anniversary of the flight relayed how there was lasting psychological trauma and physical scars that would never heal. Ken Shepard died a couple of years after the crash. Olga opened a new bookstore while she fought in the courts for five years trying to get the U.S. government to pay for the loss of her bookstore. She finally received $244,000 in a settlement in 1987, then died two years later. It wasn't until years after that 
when it was revealed by the head of controllers at Greater Cincinnati International Airport that the plane rented by the FBI had a malfunctioning transponder, a device that sends out altitude signals to the control tower. That might have been a contributing factor, but officially, investigators never determined the cause of the crash. And of course, there is a second mystery here, because the only man who knew where the $50,000 was buried died in the crash. The money was never recovered. If it was found later, nobody came forward to admit it. But, you know, given that the money recovered in Chicago was buried in a nature preserve, arguably Cincinnati's buried treasure won't be discovered easily. So this was the deadliest day for the FBI before 1982. Do you know where it stacks up today then? Best I can tell, it is still the worst single day loss of life for active duty FBI. Otherwise, the most the department has ever lost in one event was two agents. This was such a tragedy for them. 13 kids between the four men and being a dad and a stepdad of six, man, that's rough. I'm really intrigued by the hidden treasure, though. If those are paper dollars, it's not like you could find them with a metal detector, even if you could narrow it down to a park or something. Unless he put something metal in the bag, just in case he needed help finding it later, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that would be smart to do something like that. You know, I also have to wonder how well he packaged it, because if he literally buried it in the ground... It's really hard to keep water out of anything. And as you pointed out, it being paper, I wonder what the chances are that it could have survived till today. If he hit it around 1975, right after he left Chicago, we're talking nearly half a century. Well, now you're making me feel old. I was born in 1975 and you're calling it a half century already. Welcome to the half century, Mark, nephew. (laughs) Anyways, good story. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Led by the guitar and songwriting of frontman Curtis Dressman, New Moons emerged in 2015 as an experimental pop rock band. Chris is joined in the band by Tom Dressman and Zach Howard. Now, they debuted with an album, Glass Planet, followed it up three years later with Blood in the Waves, all the while touring and hitting some significant music festivals. Now they have worked out some new material, and they're going to be releasing The Whole on April the 30th. So follow them on Facebook, and you can keep up with what they're up to. And in the meantime, while we wait for that to come out, let's have another listen to this song. I know it's a fan favorite. Here's Wash Me Away by New Moons. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.